you're listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we learn about the unsung heroes of war. Heroes who don't have films made about them, but who are often the ones in the most danger on and off the battlefield. Our guest today, Sofian Khan, a documentary filmmaker, shares with us the story behind his most recent documentary, The Interpreters. The documentary follows the stories of three local Afghan and Iraqi interpreters who risked their lives for the U.S. military on the promise that they'd receive U.S. visas for themselves and their families, only to be left behind and their lives put in grave danger. What's different about this conversation is not only do we get a perspective of a filmmaker who got up close and personal with these real-life heroes, but I got to share my perspective and experience of being a combat interpreter in Afghanistan. So in many ways, this episode is about my personal story of transformation, the things that I saw, what I learned, and the things I'd like to share with my audience. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. So without further ado, this is me and Sofian Khan. Sofian, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing, Bakhtash? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's great to be with you here in uh, New York City in your apartment. So uh, really quickly, just for our audience here, how would you describe what you do and how do you uh, tell people that it is what you do? Yeah, I'm a filmmaker. I have a small production company called Capital K Pictures, small but growing. We are focused a lot in the documentary space, but we are developing a few narrative projects, some which are based on you know true stories and documentaries that we've done. And some that are that are not. So we're kind of exploring the series space as well. That's great. How long have you been in this documentary film space? How long have you been making films? I've been making films for a minute. I, you know, go, going back to high school, I think a lot of filmmakers kind of get the bug around that time, especially, you know, with the access, you know, better access to sort of the technology. The digital technology is kind of still just kind of birthing at the time that I was discovering filmmaking and I think you know it gives you it gives you access to the tools and also the ability to do it yourself you know in a, in a way that I think was more difficult in the past but as far as really being a serious filmmaker and working in documentary it's really been the last six or seven years yeah. for me I did a few shorts and then I did my first feature which we started shooting in 2012 and finished in 2015 so that's really when I would say I, I kind of entered into the, the documentary space. Yeah, yeah. So last six, seven years, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, your film, The Interpreters, can we talk about that really quickly? Uh, that's essentially the film that connected you and I a few months ago, which brought me here to New York to kind of talk to you about your work and your life and uh, the impact this film's made on people here in the United States, servicemen and women, immigrants, refugees. So let's talk about Interpreters. Can you tell us about what that film is and, you know, the two-minute sort of like pitch in terms of what people don't know about it really quickly? Sure. So The Interpreters is about Afghan and Iraqi interpreters who worked with the uh, U.S. military and they are promised visas for their service. It's a dangerous job. Not only is it dangerous in the sense that you're out in the field, in some cases some interpreters are on bases or dealing with sort of intelligence gathering and other things. But some guys that we uh, worked with, you know, were given guns and, and on patrols and in a lot of danger in that moment. But then also just the affiliation with the U.S. forces that with 
with the occupying forces in the eyes of the Taliban and ISIS and, you know, various militias in Iraq made you a target. So it was really important that the SIV program came into existence, which is a special immigrant visa. And this gave the opportunity for inter, you know, interpreters and former interpreters who are in danger to be able to get to safety with them, you know, with their families. However, the, you know, the film is about how it doesn't work very well. So, yes, we followed uh, quite a lot of different stories and really boiled it down into three that are in the film. But, I mean, this is something that you know about. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience, yeah. you know, as an interpreter yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd just like to say really quickly that this film had a lot of meaning for me and a lot of impact on me in terms of how you guys captured what it means to be an interpreter in the context of a place like Afghanistan or Iraq, essentially in a conflict zone. Yeah, my, my, my quick little background story about being an interpreter is that I was recruited when the surge was announced by Obama in late 2009, December of. And so a month later after it was announced, I was essentially recruited by the DOD to become, essentially go to Afghanistan and work as an embedded interpreter with the Marines. And so I was in country for six months before that, before that happened. And I was technically what's called a CAT-2 interpreter. So as you well know, there's, there's levels to, to interpreters. So there's CAT-1, which are the local interpreters. There's CAT-2 interpreters, which are essentially Americans with uh, a background from either Iraq or Afghanistan mm -hmm. that are security cleared by the DOD, who then are American citizens. And then there are CAT-3 interpreters, which are American citizens who are given top, secre top security clearance. And so I was a CAT-2 interpreter, which, was, uh, which meant that you know, I essentially went out, did everything that the U.S. military needed, so everything, um, I was associated with what's called the SODIF team, so the special operations teams in Afghanistan, and did everything from, you know, interpreting for village elders that wanted wells in their, in their villages, to going on mission operations, going after insurgents, to getting the needs met of local, local, local staff on the base. What's really curious about that role is that, you know, people often think of an interpreter as just somebody who, like, transmits a message, right? And it's more than that. And it's really hard. And what you're essentially doing is you're a bridge between two, two worlds that in many ways have very little in common, especially initially. And so imagine this in the context of conflict, in the context of like heightened emotional, just heightened emotions, right? Where, you know, the fight or flight or freeze sorts of um, mechanisms in your body and your mind really just come out. And being in a place like conflict, whether you're a serviceman uh, or a woman in the context of a place like Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, what's really interesting about conflict is that it really brings out the best and the worst in people, even as an interpreter. You're in that space. And what's interesting about interpreters is that they're often the ones that aren't thanked. They're not the ones that are, you know, highlighted when it comes to any of this, any of the conflict, sure. any of the conflict. And so for that reason, I felt like your film did a great job of capturing what it meant to be stuck in the middle, serving in many ways a greater good that you think that these individuals wanted for their countries, even more so than some Americans, and um, what the implications of that were, and then what the implications of that were for their families, and what, that, what it felt like when the United States in many ways wasn't able there to help them when they needed it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you guys were able to capture three stories of individuals that 
struggled to come to the United States when they were promised initially that they were going to be helped. And um, seeing their s- stories of struggle is really important for, for, for people in the United States to know about. Because I think, again, the United States, we, when we think of the wars in, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, we think of those that are dressed in uniform that come from the United States. But we often forget about those people that, the interpreters, we forget about how their role was crucial in the whole operation of being in those places. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about like, let's talk about that experience, man. Can you talk about like the impact that film has had? You've gone, so you went on like a, a, a film festival circuit mm-hmm. and you've showed this film numerous hundreds of times. What's been, what's been the feedback that you've gotten from people about this film? How does it, you know, what's the sort of impact it's had? Yeah, I mean, it's always great to talk to both you know, former interpreters and and veterans who worked with interpreters. So I want to kind of talk to you more about your experience. But I feel that that has been to hear from people that, you know, that they felt that it was telling their story, that it um, captured something about the experience was really important. And it's also been, I mean, especially we did a, we did a screening tour that was in a lot of communities with, you know, a lot of veterans and some communities that had also, refugee and SIV um, populations as well. And it was really interesting to have the dialogue around, you know, a lot of veterans saying, man, you know, I lost track of my interpreter. Like, I don't know where so-and-so is. And I only knew him by this nickname. And I didn't, I just don't know how, like, what is he doing? Is he out? Maybe they wrote a letter for someone, you know, but they haven't the process takes so long that that person hasn't come out, you know, hasn't been able to get the visa. So that those are really, you know, real-time stories. And I think that there's this feeling sometimes that, you know, these wars are kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of at the end. I mean, the longest conflict in Afghanistan, you know, in American history. And it's like there's this desire to kind of just leave and kind of forget about wash your hands of it. And, you know, this is just one example of a story that is still, it's still affecting people's lives. And interpreters are just a small sliver of that. But I think that in some ways telling that story does really force, especially people who are involved in the conflicts, you know, American soldiers, contractors, to kind of think about those guys and who, like you said, kind of can fall into the background sometimes, not be given that credit not also even kind of people recognizing how much danger they're putting themselves in by taking on that role. So that, that to me, bringing the, the film to that group is really important. But then I think with a broader audience, it's just, you know, we recently broadcasted on PBS Independent Lens, which, you know, although we've toured the film and reached thousands of people with it in, in, in the, that context, obviously the broadcast is just reaching a much larger group of, of people. And I feel it's valuable to kind of tell us stories and remind people about the, you know, the, the kind of like epic scale upon which these wars have affected people's lives. And again, interpreters are the small slivers. It's the story that does grab people, though, because of how directly involved they are, they were and they are with, you know, with the effort, with the mission. And then there's a realization at some point, and this happened in one of the last screenings where someone said, you know, I really appreciate you bringing me into this life of this Iraqi and 
I I just through this friendship that this Iraqi has with an American soldier, seeing this other side of oh this this is who Iraqis are. I didn't know, and 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 it's like then they realize oh wait he's got a family. You know, he has that immediate family that's going to get the SIV and be able to leave. But, you know, he's got cousins, he's got these brothers, you know, all these people who are who are there and who are affected by the war and who are also affiliated with them and, you know, may have been in danger. There were a few episodes with other interpreters that weren't in the film who, you know, even extended family members were being threatened because they knew that, the you know, that this person was working with the U.S. So it's like the the scale of the effect of these wars is massive and i think this this helps to kind of people who may ignore that you know kind of be pulled into the story on a human level first and then it kind of the film just slowly zooms out in a way and says you know look at look at this like this is a huge a responsibility and a huge weight that needs to be taken seriously and i think you know the fear is is that as we go forward now and like i think this administration really wants to kind of just walk away and then also not just it's not just about walking away but it's also about not learning anything you know so that it's going to be just as easy for them to kind of make an argument to go into another conflict you know without having really gained any kind of lesson from this whole thing yeah i mean gosh there's so much there to unpack right so sophia what's really interesting about being an interpreter in the context of a conflict is that, you know, the insurgency knows that on a mission, when their American forces, ISAF, NATO forces, and the Afghan, Iraqi forces going after, let's say, going after a stronghold where insurgents reside, the insurgency knows that, you know, their top target is the interpreter. Mm-hmm. Like, being in Afghanistan, I remember, you know, the chatter was that, you know, the insurgency was offering their fighters leadership. The insurgency, the leadership of the insurgencies were offering their fighters like an extra $20,000 if they could kill an interpreter in conflict. Mm-hmm. Because the moment an interpreter's out of the picture, all of a sudden you have 100, maybe 150 soldiers on both, you know, ISAF, NATO forces, as well as Afghan, Iraqi forces. They can't communicate with each other. There's confusion. And in that confusion, they can wreak a whole bunch of havoc. And so it's to their benefit. It's the benefit of the insurgents in order to do that. And so people people don't realize that. So their lives, I would argue, in many ways are, you know, much more in danger than everybody else. The moment that they are targeted and or found out, one. Two, there's a reason why interpreters take on a different name when they're actually working because they don't want people to know their actual identity. Sure. And so in, in your film, right, you guys captured this really well with the one the one interpreter when he introduced himself to Paul, one of the main characters, he introduced himself as Philip Morris, Philip Morris because he smoked cigarettes, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what he was known as throughout the entire film and throughout his service. And so people really, people have to really think about like, okay, what does it mean to be an interpreter in the context of this insurgency and in this battle and in this war? Also too, so let's, let's just really quickly talk about the SIV program because I don't think people actually understand what that means. It's an sure. acronym that's thrown around. So for the audience, SIV program essentially uh, stands for a special immigrant visa. It was passed in Congress to essentially expedite the process of getting interpreters to the United States when their lives were in danger. They could essentially prove that their lives were in danger and it would expedite their process of getting to the United States. And it shouldn't take more than a year, nine months to a year for that to happen. 
And in the film interpreters, it was uh, demonstrated that, you know, cases took closer to five, six, seven years. Yeah. And so for those years, not only were those interpreters' lives in danger, but their families' lives were in danger. And Sofiane, if you could talk about really quickly the one character that you had, right? So you had three stories. One of the stories was of a, a character, Mujtaba, who left Afghanistan, who couldn't wait any longer for uh, his SIV paperwork to get processed. What was his story? How did he? How did his life turn out? Yeah, so we met Mujtaba when he was already in Turkey, and he had made this decision because he had been getting threats from the Taliban that he wasn't going to wait for his SIV. He hadn't even gotten a response to, you know, the kind of sort of initial step of whether his application had been, you know, accepted. So the, even these sort of simple, you know, administrative steps take so long. And when you're in that situation, you don't want to be making the mistake of being in this place waiting and then something happening to your, he was especially concerned about his children, you know, his three kids. So he made this decision, difficult decision to just leave as, as a refugee, to go to Turkey and then attempt to cross over to Europe, to Greece and find his way to Germany or somewhere where they could uh, seek asylum. Uh, you know, tragically, he went on a boat that was overloaded. That was actually a wooden boat that essentially just kind of like broke in half and he lost his, his wife, his daughter, and his youngest son. So he was able to rescue his older son. And he, their bodies weren't found. So he has held out hope that, that they're alive, that, that they could have been possibly rescued. by he was res, Him and his uh, son, they were rescued by the Turkish Coast Guard. So they were taken back to Turkey. He thought perhaps that his, the rest of his family had been, you know, maybe on a rescued by a Greek boat or maybe another Turkish boat that took them somewhere else. So when we met him, he was in the search. And I think that the SIV had just fallen into the background. The application was still out there in the ether with no response, but it wasn't really on his mind. But then he actually got a response. And this is months into searching for his family he gets this response that says, hey, paperwork's all in order. We can move forward. Here's the next step, which is devastating. I mean, he le had left some months before with the fear that he wasn't going to hear anything. And he'd, ha he'd heard all these stories of other guys waiting for so long, which was just normally what we were seeing. So he made this decision, and it turned out to unfortunately be a fateful decision. So you'll see in the film how that kind of unfolds. But I think he he's... He's very indicative of a certain, when we were looking into this issue, we filmed with guys in Afghanistan, we kept on hearing, oh, so-and-so just, he just gave up on it. Like he's been waiting for so long, he's gonna just, he's gone now to Europe. And so this was happening a lot. And there was a woman in Colorado, Anna Segura, who was like very helpful through this whole process. She had volunteered in Greece, just basically helping refugees and she had started to meet a lot of interpreters and you know interpreters were coming across and basically ending up being really helpful for aid workers you know so these guys who had played this role for the u.s military here they are and they're making themselves useful again basically being able to communicate between the aid workers and the refugees that are coming ashore so she kind of made friends with a lot of those guys and she started putting together this list of 
database essentially of all these guys who had left. And now the question mark was now that they've left the country where they applied for the SIV, they're in Europe, are they going to be able to get the SIV? Do they have to be, this was an unanswered question, didn't know whether this, when we were, when we were filming with them in Europe. And then it started to happen. The guys who'd left would, would still actually get the SIV, which was a, which was good. I mean, obviously for Mitchtaba, it was like the news came late. So yeah, that's how that story with uh, Mujtaba unfolded and it kind of the way that it um, connected with so many other stories of guys that we met in Greece as well. We met some guys in Germany who had made the journey and were seeking asylum. So it was just, that's, that's just a good example of a system not working. If you have to actually leave as a refugee with no status and basically you're trying, you know, we talked to one guy in Germany who he, he said, okay, hold on for a second. He's like, stop the interview. I want to talk to the American people. He looks right into the camera and he's just like, what's up with this? Like Germany is giving me asylum now. I didn't help Germany. I helped your country, you know? So it was this very, it was an intense interview. It's, it's not actually in the film. We're hopefully going to cut something separate with, with that piece because I think what he's saying is a really important message because there's so many, still so many guys waiting for these, the SIV and this experience of leaving as a refugee is, it's, it's common enough that, you know, what he's saying makes so much sense. So that's, that's a really interesting point, right? So like, what is that then, I guess the question that arises then, well, like, what does that say about how we engage in conflicts, right? In the context of the United States and our U.S. foreign policy, what does that say about what we promise, what does that say about understanding the long-term implications of making decisions to go into countries? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what is something like a million people were folded into the German economy legally in the last five years, either from, you know, from countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, and now it's this place in which a lot of refugees want to go to because they know that the government there will take care of them, will give them skills, will teach them languages that will help them succeed. And uh, we have to ask the question, like, you know, the guy that you're talking about in your interview poses some really important and hard questions, right? So what was the sentiment amongst people then, like, when you were, when you were making this film, right, in Iraq and Afghanistan? You were making this throughout the course of, what, 2012 until 2015? No, actually, so we started the film. So some of the storytelling in the film is, yeah. like, flashback, yeah. and it was based on materials that we got from some of the characters. Yeah. So you'll see... There's even scenes that go back to like 2009, but that's all footage that was given to us by Paul and, and Philip Morris. So we actually started filming very late 2015, and we finished essentially really kind of late 2017. I mean, we opened up our edit again a little bit yeah. to film, you know, to film sort of the travel ban stuff that happened. So that was like early 17. So we were submitting to festivals and we did our whole, started our whole festival tour in 2018. So that's really curious because 2015 is when the United States essentially uh, was the last stage of its drawdown in its surge, mm -hmm. right? And then by that point, the United States had been spent, had spent like what, five, six years already announcing that it had declared victory in a place like Iraq. So that timing is quite interesting. And then also too, with the Trump presidency, his first few months as the president of the United States, he declared the travel ban against seven islamic countries initially yeah. initially it's, it's been remixed several times yeah so the timing of your film the interpreters is really interesting because of all these other things that we're talking about right so the end of the conflict so to speak or the drawdown of the conflicts as well as the walls in the united states going up for people coming from troubled countries as i would say so 
what did you learn about uh, the sentiment of people here as it pertained to the timing of the travel ban? How did that, Mm. how did that play out? What did you learn? What did people say? What was the sentiment of people that came to your festivals and saw your film? What if people sent you an email? Like what's the feeling and, or, you know, uh, the overarching kind of message that you're getting from people based on, based on that. Yeah. I mean, it's been a strange few years. I mean, I think when we started making the film, it was kind of interesting that there were people telling us, and these were people in the government. So obviously it was their interest to kind of say this, but they were essentially saying, you know, you know, you guys are making this film about this issue, but you know, we've got it under control. Yes. It needs reform. But ultimately, it's, it works. We're going to get these guys, you know, to safety. Don't worry about it. Like, you don't need to be making this movie. <laughs> How interesting. That was the uh, advice. That was the advice they gave to you. Yeah, I mean, that was people in the State Department. So it's like, obviously, that you know, it's their, that's their whole program. So they're going to say that. But what was interesting is that then when it became clear that, you know, Trump had won the election, those same people, you know, that we had talked to were like, okay, you know, this is this is going to change, you know. The, the, the SIV program's going to change. A, this is yeah. There's going to be a change here in general with refugees and, and entries of refugees, but also expect it. And Rex Tillerson came out, the short-lived <laughs> Rex Tillerson, and he said this. He said this whole thing about we're going to do right by these guys and all this kind of stuff. And then you just watch the numbers sh- go down. Of, you know, of the SIVs, of SIVs granted. granted, yeah. And then, of course, in the overall refugee ceiling, uh, that's a, sort of an official number that drops as well. But it just, it's just, it, it's a reflective of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think it's just even these guys who have these records and who have veterans who are saying they're good, you know, they did right by us, et cetera, et cetera, they're just slowing it down. They're slowing it down to a trickle when really it's either there's there's a backlog so it's reflective of the time i think in terms of people who see the film previously this was a very bipartisan issue yeah and when we started the film john mccain was our on the republican side was sort of the champion and you know we interviewed him his office was very supportive he was always i think he he was interesting because you, you talk to him kind of off the record it was about you know keeping the promise, et cetera, et cetera, which he he'll say in interviews as well. But in the interviews, he was more focused on a pragmatic, you know, if this is how you treat the people that are your allies in this conflict, and he's you know he's kind of a hawkish guy, so he's thinking about other conflicts and he's saying, well, if if the, the word gets around, this is how you treated people before, how are you going to expect to get the same kind of help in the future? So he had this pragmatic approach. We had other allies on the Democratic side, Jean Shaheen, someone who supportive of the film as well. We interviewed her. The reasoning is a little different for her, but it's, they were, but they're allies, you know, so across the aisle, working together to try to improve the program, to keep the amount of visas available at all times. And then you just have it kind of, you know, McCain passes away. Bob Corker was someone else who was supportive. He retires. A few other people who kind of, you know, lost their elections, even their primaries. So it's like, it's kind of been a, it's 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 not an easy time to get that kind of support again, bipartisan, you know. It's not popular on that side of the aisle to, to let anyone, for any reason, Come into the, the country. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard, right? So the immigration debate's quite, gosh, it's just such a divisive topic, right? People have to realize that not everybody that wants to come to the United States is bad. We have to find a, a proper vetting system. But we also, too, and I would not, this is where I fall when it comes to this, is I've recently concluded that the definition of wisdom for me is understanding the long-term implications of our decisions, whether that's on a personal level, uh, familial level, or even like a national level. And so if it's any way possible for you know the context of the United States for us implementing foreign policy, we have to think of the long-term implications of our decisions. And you know who would have thought that the wars that we've been engaged in since 9-11 would have led to, again, a greater insurgency in Afghanistan, right? Or, you know, the, the, the establishment of ISIS. These are all resulting from this, from this notion of short-term thinking when it Absolutely. comes to American foreign policy. Yeah. So John McCain's right. We have to understand that. And what's the most tragic thing would be to have somebody and or people and or a group of people, a subset of people that were on our side and that had the same notions of, of worldviews as us in terms of, you know, wanting support a place like Afghanistan and, and or Iraq and then having them turn and then having them want to be our enemy, right? Because we didn't do good by them. That's a major fear. That's a major, major, major fear. Gosh, so much can be said about this immigration topic. Yeah. I, I just wanted to add the, the vetting thing is an interesting question. That word gets thrown around a lot. And I think that when it comes to the SIVs, I mean, these guys are the most vetted people you can possibly imagine. I mean, you know from your own experience when they're bringing in local interpreters, you know, the Cat 1 interpreters, these guys are going through a rigorous background checks. They are constantly being checked on. They're basically having to, you know, in some cases they're checking their, their cell phones, you know, who have you been calling, things like that are going on. They are have these long records of, of good standing. If they wanted to hurt Americans, they had ample opportunity to do it there. I think some one of the guys that we filmed with was still active, working on a base, the Kabul, mm-hmm. the CAF, the Kabul Air Force. Mm-hmm. And he was on the base all the time working with Americans and when we had talked to those guys we mm-hmm. talked to the, the soldiers he was working with who, who rotate often so mm-hmm. he was just started working with these guys sure. and they were basically like we don't understand how he doesn't have how can he not have his SIV at this point he comes on the base every day hangs out with us you know if he wanted to do something here's the place to do it so it's just they are they are the people who've basically been extreme vetted, you know, this term, and and yet their visas are held up and in this black box. It really is interesting. I mean, there's this idea, it's important to talk about this idea of vetting as it pertains to what you're talking about. So for those that don't know, this idea of green and blue attacks, right? So interpreters, gosh, I mean, there are teams within the U.S. government that go out and specifically go out to places like Iraq and Afghanistan and investigate interpreters left and right and make mm-hmm. sure that they are mm-hmm. not associated with any insurgent links, any anything shady in their background. And this is important because they wanted to prevent green and blue attacks. So insider attacks onto bases, onto compounds, which became quite prevalent, at least when I was there in Afghanistan, starting in 2011. Mm-hmm. That was an, a really, gosh, for lack of a better word, just really uh, interesting way in which the insurgency was able to kind of penetrate and or instill fear in the context of ISF NATO forces within a base and or compound. And what you're talking about is the prevention of that by interpreters, right? The vetting was to make sure that they 
weren't going to commit these sorts of insider attacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you hope for this film to do? What do you hope for, you know, because right now we're still, we're still in Afghanistan. Right now there's peace talks and Trump has, his, his MO is essentially to bring peace to Afghanistan, at least on paper. How do you think the timing of this film and the importance of your stories in this film will shape how people feel about the war in Afghanistan and also the conflict that's still happening in Iraq? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's one of those stories that I feel like it's 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 hard to. I mean, the hope in the in the near term is that it it kind of can awaken more awareness about the the guys who are waiting. You know, so directly the interpreters. That is something that is really crucial. I mean, we're still in touch with a lot of guys who are there. Yeah. Who are some who are in some really bad situations, and you know, when you're this idea of sort of you're in hiding, it's like it means you can't really work, you know, you can't really be out there if you've just gotten a threat. And in some cases, guys have left to India on just like a tourist visa, you know, something like that. Just to, it's escape, like, just to get out. Just to get out when it gets hot, you know, and it's like, that's not, think of all the money that goes into that, you know, like you're just going to go fly and hang out in India. It's like, you, and you don't have any income. So that is a pretty tricky situation to be in. So I would hope that the film could help pressure, you know, even some of the specific cases, which is something that we tried to do, even as we were kind of doing interviews, is, was to kind of like sp- basically reference p- specific cases. And that's something that we're trying to figure out how to how to be able to do, maybe in the context of like some short content mm-hmm. and other things that we can release around the film. But in the bigger picture, the message of the film is really just to A, kind of like I was kind of talking about before, there's that sense of, of recognition of the effects of the decisions to go to war, Good. you know, the kind of like scale upon which that affects so many people. I mean, that recent report that came out about the amount of deaths that caused by the war in, in Iraq alone, it's just, it's, it's a shocking thing to read, you know? Mm. So I think it's just more about questioning the motives for going to any other future conflicts and being aware of how mm-hmm. how it affects such a vast group of people but i mean maybe that's that's too abstract so i think it's better to focus on sure. how it can how it can help interpreters i mean that i guess the second part of it is really what i hope that a general audience who can't necessarily be involved in helping interpreters would at least kind of tune into that a little bit and think about it next time there's sort of the drumbeat for war you know Man, that's that's intense. What did you learn about what it meant to be an American while you were making this film? And what? The, the, let me kind of frame this question because I think it's important. What did it mean for you in the context of the ideals of being an American, interviewing these interpreters, interviewing people in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Turkey, Greece, Germany? What was the feeling that you got of what it meant to be an American? Hmm. And has it changed? Uh, has it changed the way you've thought about your sense of identity about being an American? Definitely. I think one of the positive things about, and I think a lot of people around the world kind of feel that there's this optimistic and idealistic element to the American identity, right? I think when you're con- confronted with the effects of, of these wars, with people who are really impacted by it, it's hard to, it, it becomes increasingly indefensible to stand, kind of have that attitude, you know, to have that feeling like that we're doing good in the world you know, that we have something to really offer in terms of, you know, 
obviously when weapons of mass destruction kind of fell off as a reason to go into Iraq, yeah. it became about bringing democracy, you know? Right, right. Which definitely, I mean, there's a constitution, there's a, a democratic, you know, system in place. And it's like, those things are a blueprint, you know, that can be forced upon or, or adopted by a given society. I don't think that it was done in a way, if, if, if the reason behind going to Iraq had been, okay, solely, we're here to get rid of Saddam and put democracy in place, you would have had a plan for that. I think what ended up being uh, what was done and what the resources that were given to the reconstruction effort, the resources that were given were so small. And, and in some cases they were doing rebuilding and you know rebuilding ministries using Iraqi money that had been held by the UN and they were able to access it and basically spend money that belonged to Iraqis to do this. It was done in such a willy-nilly fashion. It was done without much thought. And, and planning or pre-planning, whereas the invasion itself had been a project that of a year in the Pentagon, perfectly laid out, the greatest military minds, untold resources spent on it. You can't really defend, you know, you can't really talk to an Iraqi who is now a refugee somewhere with a straight face telling them that. <laughs> You know, we Americans have uh, this democracy that we're here to bring to you. Mm -hmm. It could be that way. It could have been that way. But it's very clear that it's an afterthought. And I think in many ways it's the same thing in Afghanistan. So that to me has really eroded some of the basic elements of optimism and idealism that I saw as part of my identity as an American. That's you know? interesting. That's interesting. I think it's still there. And there's still the hope that we have you know, institutions that can kind of endure through the sort of, you know, time that we're in and sort of the attitudes of xenophobia or the sort of just division, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of the last two decades, we're coming to that point where it's going to be, you know, 20 years. It is a pretty pitiful record. So it's interesting you're talking about that, like you were in many ways um, confronted by others about this sense of optimism and this sense of what exactly is your government doing? You have a democracy. How is it? Because in the context of being in a place like the greater Islamic world, the greater Middle East, when people say democracy, they mean, they know what that means. They know that it means like a majority of people voted for this person and supported this person. This is what they wanted. And so... That is quite representative of, of, but it's this idea of like how we're perceived abroad. Mm. And so the first time I was confronted with this idea, let me just kind of quickly tell a story about this is uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique and I was in Mozambique, uh, I was in Mozambique from 2005 until 2007 as a Peace Corps volunteer. And it was really, really, really difficult to be a volunteer there because in 2004, 2003 was when the United States decided to invade Iraq. And gosh, even then, the internet was around. People had access to information, not to the same level that it is today, but people had access to information. Those that knew would confront me about it. What is your president doing? How could your people want this? Why didn't, your, why didn't, why didn't the American people stop this? And this was something that made me feel as though uh, this this was the first time my identity as an American was confronted in terms of a political identity, mm -hmm. which was an interesting transformation for me because 
it made me question what it meant to be an American abroad, one. And number two, it made me question the type of leader that I thought America should have and how we are perceived amongst the rest of the world. And so that, those, that experience, those two years, Sofian, helped me realize that I essentially want to uh, give my vote to a leader in the White House that's going to uh, make the lives of Americans abroad safer, that's going to at least try to give the prestige of Americans abroad, make it better. And that was the first time I was confronted about the, with that. And what's really curious about that, that, that story is that I went back after 10 years to Mozambique. I went back last year, January of 2017, so 10 years after I'd left. And in 2005 until 2007, the United States, even with the Iraq invasion, the United States was still seen as this place, and to be an American was still seen as like this really um, prestigious sense of identity to hold. Mm -hmm. People still wanted to come to the United States. When I went back after 10 years, again, in the wake of the Trump presidency, in the wake of all these wars that we're talking about, the prestige of being an American, I promise you, was lowered. Now the Chinese are all over Africa, the Brits, the French. These people, I mean, I, I, I intentionally had quite a conversations with people asking them how they felt about Americans. And to kind of piggyback what you're talking about, it was this idea of like, what exactly are we doing abroad? How good are we essentially being abroad? How are, how are we perceived then too? And, you know, I have a lot of diplomatic friends and they tell me that to be an American abroad is a lot more dangerous now than ever before. Yeah, sure. And it's, it's based on the stuff that we're talking about. Man. Yeah. It's based on all that. Um, so we have to really, really question what it means to be an American, what it means to, you know, put people in positions of power that's going to, you know, represent us, especially as it pertains to how people perceive us abroad. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, kind of parallel to that, I think that, you know, growing up, I my father's from Pakistan, so I would always spend time there. And uh, my cousins were from a very early age. I mean, it wasn't tied even to, I mean, we're just going back to Desert Storm, you know, I'm a young kid. Early 1990s. Yeah, yeah early 1990s, and my cousins are like, what, what's going on? And I always defended everything, you know, I always, it was, from them, it didn't cut the same way, because, mm -hmm. you know, they're in Pakistan, they're kind of, you know, Pakistan has a, has a complicated relationship with the U.S., and we don't need to go into it, but it's sort of an on and off, again, client state in some ways, you know. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I always took things with a grain of salt. And then, it, but being confronted then by people who are directly impacted, you know, I think that's where it really, and and I'm sure you, you know, you felt this with obviously your family in Afghanistan yeah. and yeah. it's like, it's another level, you know, it's harder to, it's harder to explain things. It's harder to, it's harder to kind of accept it. So, yeah. And it fuels all types of conspiracy theories. And oh, yeah, what exactly yeah, yeah. is going on? Oh, no, I mean, yeah. of course. Right, right. Like the United <laughs> States is here because they're not interested in Afghanistan. They're not interested in Pakistan. They're actually interested in Iran. Like all types of stuff. Oh, flies, yeah, right? yeah. Oh, no, it's crazy. I remember after I was in, I mean, actually, I was kind of arrived in Pakistan soon after, you know, Osama was, was taken out. Yeah. And I, remember, I just took my camera and I went around in the neighborhood asking people what they thought had happened, you know, and... Mm -hmm. You got the craziest stuff ever. You know, oh, yeah, Osama's actually been, he was captured back in, you know, 2002. They had his body frozen and they were just waiting for a moment, you know, political moment to like unveil. He wasn't actually in Abbottabad, all this type of stuff. So it was like hilarious group of interviews. And I just was like, wow, this is, and also a lot of people just didn't even want to talk about it because they thought I was like a, you know, spy. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, I'm curious. So. How curious. Oh, that's so interesting. 
And then, so this is this is an interesting question that just came to my mind. My mind is, how has your sense of identity been? So you, we talked about your sense of American identity and how that was confronted by making this film and talking to people through this filmmaking process. How has your Pakistani identity kind of uh, changed through the making of this film? Has it has was it confronted at all? Was it uh, something that you had to kind of deal with internally? Um, oh yeah, I mean, as you yeah. well know, I think the average Afghan doesn't <laughs> appreciate Pakistan's involvement. <laughs> you know, I mean, unless you're a Taliban guy or something who's being supported by, you know, Pakistan ISI or something like that. So it was a double whammy, actually, being in Afghanistan and then telling people, you know, oh, yeah, you know, here, let me defend or let me not even defend. Let me talk about what America is doing. And then it's like, oh, you you're half Pakistani. Oh, man, oh we got to talk. <laughs> you know? talk. And, and for, for, for listeners, you have to understand, like, the relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan is, is very dire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most Afghans uh, will blame all their problems yep. on Pakistan. So, Sofian, that's a fascinating. Well, I mean, kind of and for no, uh, not for uh, no reason. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of you know meddling, and there has been for a long time. So, you know, and I think it's gonna. I think Pakistan is actually kind of a key role. Going back to kind of talking about with the this peace. Uh, possibility of peace happening and negotiated with the Taliban it's like Pakistan plays a huge role in that you know because of their influence of the Taliban and it's like whether they're I, I just I wonder what their calculus is right now you know I'm so curious because of, they played this game with Afghanistan for the longest time where it's just been part of a, a of their strategy against India et cetera, et cetera. and it's like I wonder what they're thinking now and what mm -hmm. they're going to do now. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm sure it won't be good. So, yeah, that's no, no, I mean, totally right. So, so Pakistan in itself is, is deemed as like the most dangerous country in the world because of nuclear weapons, the amount of like insurgent groups and terrorist groups that reside there that the government is unable to control and or supporting, right? There's, depending on what you read, it's unbelievable what's going on there. So let's, let's hold. In Karachi, you can go and get yourself a nice cappuccino, go yeah. see a movie at the theater. I mean, it's, Life is pretty normal. <laughs> Life is pretty normal. <laughs> but you know, you know how that is, that contrast of that contrast. Nor normality and then th something else happening under, under either under the surface or in other areas of the country. So yeah. in the context of Karachi, right? So Pakistan in many ways is that place too that you just described. But as it pertains to Afghanistan, it's also this place that, you know, like there's something like 5,000 madrasas between the Afpak border. Sure. Right. And, you know, like the Fatah regions, many ways is just Westerners are just unable to kind of even go there. Right. So there are many places in Pakistan that are just so difficult to get to. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's unknown essentially what's going on there. And that leads to part of the problem. That leads to part of the problem. So let's go back to this because I think this is fascinating. Let's talk about this double whammy element. So, so were things said to you that kind of that you didn't expect when you were in a place like Afghanistan about being Pakistani or did you kind of expect this when you told people? Yeah, I expected it. I mean, I just kind of, I focused more on the fact that, you know, my, interesting. my heritage does go back to Afghanistan. So it's an interesting yeah, journey. You know, let's it's talk like, about that. Let's yeah. Talk. It, you know, it's basically four generations or four or five generations back. My grandfather's side, they came to India. So they uh -huh. were actually from Afghanistan uh -huh. and came to India and then, you know, we're in India for a while and then the partition happened and they went to Pakistan. So it's like, they, you know, 
as so many people in the region, I think it's, it's, you, you have all this mixed background. And mm. so whether you identify with one side of it or another, so I just focused on, oh, you know, it's we're Patans, you know? Yeah. So yeah, for, for people that, for people that don't know, Patans are essentially Pashtuns. Yeah. And so, yeah, you tell somebody you're Patan, like you're, you're pretty much okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so you found, you found that you found the key. You yeah. found the key. Yeah. 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 yeah, you know, yeah. It's about. It's about, you know, obviously you get into that stuff as you get to know people more, but you don't want to introduce yourself a certain way when you're trying to build a relationship. So, but I, I on the, at the same time, I want to put this out there, which yeah. is that all these things ended up being sort of intellectual discussions. No one, Great. it's amazing how you are actually received with open arms as an American. You know, you're actually, you're received with open arms as a Pakistani. It's more about, it's, it's this whole thing, uh, which is like kind of a cliche, but like, you know, it's the government, not the people, which it's supposed to be the government that's for the people, by the people, et cetera. You know? Exactly. So, so it's, you know, but you're given a lot of benefit of the doubt. And I think the hospitality in Afghanistan is just on another level. I mean, I'm used to it in Pakistan as well, but I think the Afghans have taken it to another another level yeah. of, of just wonderful hosts and warm people. So yeah. none of this was like, oh my God, you know, you're, you're from this, these places and we're not going to talk to you. It was always like, oh, okay. You know, over, a, you know, over some food or some tea or something. And it's talking about, talking about things. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about what you're saying is, you know, like major things happen through exposure and engagement, major monumental shifts in thinking happen through exposure and engagement. I often tell people there are four steps to happiness, right? One is having incredibly low expectations. Two, practicing gratitude. Three, understanding and or seeing progress in the work that you do and the things that you are involved in. But then also four is this notion of engagement. I think human beings on a fundamental level need engagement, want engagement, and seek it. And so your exposure and or your engagement in the context of a place like Afghanistan and or Iraq and or any of these other places that you've been through the making of this film probably led to a lot of fundamental shifts in people's thinking as well as your shifts in your thinking about how things are perceived, how your identity may represent something else that they didn't necessarily know. It's an incredible thing, man. That's an incredible thing. Yeah, and I think that's something that we try to do with the film too. It's like when you see the film, you kind of going to have these characters brought into your lives who are going to, you know, change your view as well about who you think Iraqis and Afghan uh, people are. People are. Yeah. I love the story of uh, Philip Morris. He goes from Iraq to a place like uh, a place in Minnesota, right? Like the furthest thing to what Iraq represents, cold, snowy, people eat like uh, people uh, celebrate uh, Christmas and they have ham. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> like all these things that Philip Morris, an Iraqi Muslim, just did not think he would end up and yeah. were being exposed to. Yeah. But these people in the film that you did a wonderful job of uh, uh, capturing this, but they, they welcomed him with open arms. Absolutely. And that was a beautiful story. I love that story about Philip Morris. Um, going to like middle America of all places. And this too, actually, the reason why that his story spoke to me was that my family in many ways had that same similar experience. Mm. I wasn't able to, when my family fled Afghanistan, spent two years in Pakistan, eventually were granted um, asylum to come to the United States. We landed in a small little town in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and there weren't any Afghans. There weren't any Muslims. Sophia, there wasn't even any Basmati rice. 
<laughs> Man, how'd you survive? It was hard. <laughs> and so what's really interesting about notions of home, like I'm doing writing a lot, a lot of writing now and I'm thinking about like my memories in terms of what, how we coped then and what home meant is that the simplest things can bring you such comfort and food, simple foods like rice. Once we found rice, once we found basmati rice, which was about nine months after we got there, in an Indian store mm-hmm. in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, my parents, like, I just remember us just being so happy. One simple thing reminded, of us, reminded us of home, and it brought home to us. So what was beautiful about our experience was that, you know, nine families took us in and they helped my family essentially assimilate. They taught my parents how to drive. They taught my parents what a supermarket was. They taught my mother how to use like, you know, female products in the West. They taught my parents how to speak English. And the story that you had about Philip Morris coming to a place like Minnesota in many ways was my story, was the story of my family. Like I didn't go to a diasporic community in Virginia, Fremont, New York. We didn't have other Afghans. And so that story let me reminded me that human beings can be just as warm and gracious to those that they don't know. Oh yeah. I mean, I love the scene, that part of the story, you know, especially when you have, when you see the film, you'll see some arrivals and the people that are greeting them, the people in places like Rochester, you know, in Minneapolis as well, you know, just greeting, greeting them and, trying to just make them feel at home. I mean, it's, it's a nice thing. That's like the positive side of it. It is the positive side of yeah. it. It's uh, your film captures the idea of what, of how, of how gracious people can be, how warm people can be, but also this idea that, you know, once you do make a promise, this all happened because people made a promise and they were persistent in terms of following up. And, you know, if Paul in the film, if he didn't follow up, I mean, how many emails did he send back and forth? How many correspondences did he have? You know, Philip Morris wouldn't have made it to Minnesota. You know, who knows? Who knows where he'd be? But this idea of persistence mm-hmm. and uh, keeping your word is really, really important. Definitely. Okay, man, let's talk about a, a couple other things here really quickly as it pertains to your craft. What was the process of making this film like? I mean, you know, you going there, Iraq, Afghanistan, these are war zones. Right. So how were you able to kind of, were you able to capture some footage? Were you given footage? What was it like for you to be in this context where, you know, was it the first time that you were in conflict? What did that do for you psychologically? How, how did it feel that you were there and that any moment you, if you wanted to, you could decide to leave and how did that make people around you feel? Right. Like how did that whole thing work out for you? Sure. So, I mean, the film started out as a really, just really focused on the story that was unfolding in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So it started out for the furthest thing from a conflict zone, you know? And so we put together an initial presentation clip and we uh, shopped it around and we got some support. Uh, it was a, actually MacArthur Foundation was our major support in the beginning. Great. And we knew really early on, in fact, we did like a TEDx event in Minneapolis where basically said, you know, we've got this amazing story. We showed a clip, Paul and Philip and the friendship and everyone responded really well standing ovation for Paul and Philip, you know? And then I said in the little speech, basically, that this is a really important story and it's kind of the core and heart of the film, but we know in order to tell the story of interpreters that we have to go 
and meet the guys that are in hiding or waiting for their visas who weren't as lucky to have an American pulling for them, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that was really the next phase of production. And I would say in terms of the approach, it was, you know, we were following, we were really focusing on the story of the guys trying to get the visas. So it was a little bit less focused on what was happening in terms of the conflicts. So okay. we were more focused on the idea of these guys in hiding, the threats that they had received, things like that, as opposed to kind of initially, you know, we were thinking we wanted to kind of get out with some interpreters who are with units and doing patrols and things like that. That proved to be a little difficult logistically. So we just focused more on the aspect of, you know, so we were in Kabul mostly and it was like, obviously there were things happening, bombs go off, you know, you, you of course worry about security, but I think we weren't kind of on the front line, you know, we weren't out there in the thick of it. So it was more about, for us, it was like low profile was our approach. You know, we stayed with some, we stayed at like a secure house that was like some security contractors that basically kept this like low profile house that had a safe room and an egg, you know, escape, whatever. And they had a guard and whatnot. But for us, we didn't want to drive around with any type of security. We just dressed local and, you know, we made contact with the guys well ahead of time. We did little pre-interviews on WhatsApp. So they knew it was up. Of course, there were a couple that were concerned, you know, about their security, fully understanding that. We just wanted to give them space. And we were like, okay, well, do you want to meet on the other side of town? So there was one Malik, who's in the film, you know, when he first met us, he, he wanted to meet at sort of like a random corner somewhere away from his neighborhood. So my producing partner, Andres, and I were both like, you know, dressed local. We had, you know, a beard and everything. Beard, yeah. We worked it, got our beards out. You know, I can't grow, mine's not too filled in, but it's, it, it's something. Yeah. And so he calls us and he's like, where are you guys? And we're like, we're standing on the corner that, you know, that you wanted us to be at. And he keeps driving back and forth. He says, I can't see you guys. And he says, can you just put your hand up? So he put a hand up. He stops and he goes, oh, man, I thought you guys were going to look like Americans. Get in. And he took us right to his house and, you know, we hung out. So it was like immediate. It kind of worked. I mean, it worked visually, obviously, like once we open our mouths or whatnot, people know what's up. But I think that was helpful. I think that was helpful for just making them feel at ease and gaining that trust. And, you know, we spent time with everyone ahead of actually filming and just to get to know them and that kind of thing. And we were in country for a while. So it was like, we may as well approach it that way. We weren't kind of trying to drop in and out. And so it was really about finding which story made sense for the film and fil and then following up and filming with guys. And then it was also this little bit of a calculation, which is like, obviously you want to tell a story that kind of moves and has some arc to it and sure. development. Sure. So for some guys, unfortunately they have very compelling stories, very interesting people and warm, you know, think of them very fondly, but it's like their stories haven't moved, which is part of the problem. So it's like, they're just waiting. So unfortunately, you know, those didn't necessarily work in the context of the film. Whereas with for Malik, for example, he gets certain news and he is able to, move forward. So it's like, you know, that's part of just making a documentary. You don't yeah. know what's going to happen. So yeah. you do a little bit of, of hedging. So that was kind of, that was kind of the approach. And then in terms of like, for me, I've, I've filmed a lot in, in places like Pakistan and Haiti and certain areas of Brazil that there's a certain element of risk to it, but it was the first time for me in a conflict zone. So we did some, like one of our producers really wanted us to do like hazardous environment training which is which is an interesting experience and then you know 
he gave us like bulletproof vests. And then when we showed up with these vests, the contractor guys in Afghanistan yeah. laughed at us. They were like, this will stop a nine millimeter bullet, but you know, everyone's got AKs. So there's no point <laughs> in even wearing this stuff. So there's the AKs and there's also the suicide bombs. And all oh, that sure. Stuff. So yeah, like yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, there was that element to it. But I would say for us, ultimately, we always kind of stress. And whenever we talk about this, like, you know, I think for us, it's like we're in and out. I mean, right. a month and whatever is, is, is a fair amount of time, but it's just, it's just more focusing on the fact that these guys are in the real danger, you know? Yeah. So that's interesting. So were there, was there any point in which you felt like your life was in danger? There was one time when we were coming off of the base, interestingly enough, where you think it would be the most secure. And there was some, you know, it was indirect fire, but we were just walking out of the base and the so the outer ring is like Afghan National Army. So we'd gone out through the American gate, and uh, and I'll say those guys were chilling. Didn't like when we walked up, they were chilling, and when they heard the fire, there was a scramble, and the guy who basically they had like a fifty millimeter, you know, up on like a little tower. No one was manning it, you know. So it's just like, oh man. So you just just jump behind the wall. And it went on for like just a, it was really quick. And I, I mean, and it was afterwards we asked someone, what's up with that? Like what happened? And they were like, well, Taliban's just over that mountain. They're right over there. So it's like, sometimes they come and they shoot at us, you know, to let you know that they're there. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just a, and, and then there, there was some mortifier as well and things like that. Not when we were there, but you know, not when we were on the base, but other another time and so it was just like you had the sense of there was there were these things going on but i think that was the closest to me being like oh shit you know and luckily the guy got up on the got up on the gun and started yeah but it was just you know i mean i've been in pakistan i had a couple of incidents and was near an explosion uh, about seven or eight maybe even more than that years ago and so you know that feeling is something I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who seeks out that adrenaline rush. I mean, that's not what I'm about. I, I think there are stories that I'm pursuing mm -hmm. that at that the moment that. that involve that, but it's not something that I'm, I'm not really um, seeking it out. I'm not, it's not my scene necessarily. No, I understand. I think, I think if it were, um, I mean, there are people that do get it, you know, addicted to that sort of feeling, but ultimately it's this either, you know, fight, flight or freeze. And yeah. they end up getting into this like, People that seek it love the fight, meaning it exhilarates them, right? And so it takes a special type of person for that to happen. For that yeah. to happen. What about you when you were there? Yeah, it's so, you know, as a combat interpreter, it's hard because what's really interesting about the human condition is that the human mind is able to normalize everything. Hmm. If you have enough exposure to anything, it will become normal. And initially, I mean, I remember my first bomb. I remember being in Kabul and being woken up at 4 a.m. and just thinking that was a bomb. And it happened, you know, the distance in which it happened. I remember going to the bomb site later on, a few days later. The distance was like half a mile, but it was so strong that it left a crater 20 feet deep, 40 feet wide each direction. Um... I'm not sure how many people it killed, but it, I remember being so strong that the impact literally just like woke me up and just like put, I mean, just vibrations through my entire body. And everybody can remember their first bomb. Everybody can remember their first kinetic conflict. 
Mm. It's just this thing that is so, it's riveting in a good and a bad way. I remember that. I remember, I remember seeing my youngest brother coming to call bull and him hearing his first rocket and it happening in the background. And he, again, went into this fight, flight or freeze, you know, state of being. And for me at that point, I'd been in Afghanistan for two and a half years. And for me, I was like, well, she don't worry about it. It's far away. You're not the target. Mm-hmm. And for him, he was just like, where do we need to go? Is there a bunker we need to do? And I yeah, just remember yeah. telling my brother, it's miles away. And this is the same reaction that you're, that your experience was like when the Afghan, you know, military was just chilling. They're like, the Taliban's just saying good morning. And uh, being in a conflict zone is really interesting because your sense of, your sense of reality and your sense of humor all pertains to this idea of like, who's going to get it today? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And it's so terribly unhealthy when you come back to the United States because, gosh, where this is the beacon of privilege. You know, like a tragedy in the context of the United States is like being late somewhere, for, you know, five minutes late somewhere, or like going to Starbucks and having somebody write your name in, inaccurately on your cup, right? And like people taking photos of it and just being like, this is the problem that I have today. <laughs> yeah. And that drastic contrast what is what made it really difficult to come back. But being there, man, it's just, you know, if you want, we can go into this idea of what it means to be an actual conflict. But, you know, I remember my first bomb. I remember my first the first time somebody's trying to shoot at me and I remember just feeling uh, just feeling so terribly scared. I'd never felt that scared in my life. Mm. I, I don't think it's impo- I don't think it's possible to know what fear is until you actually realize like somebody's actually trying to kill you. And um, it could be from close range, long range. It really doesn't matter. But the fact that like somebody is coming after you, there's nothing like it now. And you know, that stuff stays with you, man. Yeah. That stuff stays with you. Sure. But yeah, being in that kind of place, it's just, again, it's just part of the scenery. <laughs> it's just what, you know, like you tell people this is what happened and you tell another Afghan, another Iraqi or somebody that's like raised in that environment. It's like the common cold. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time, speaking of common colds, I remember the first time I got malaria in Mozambique. I got it twice. And the first time I got it, okay. I, told, I told my Mozambican colleagues and they were like, oh, you're okay though, right? Like it's, you know, everyone gets malaria and you know I tell people in the west I tell people here in the United States I got malaria twice and they're just like oh my god how did you survive Wait, you didn't you didn't take those pills man no I did I took them religiously but the thing oh, about yeah. the thing about the thing about malaria is that it's so smart right so you know in terms of epidemiology for every defense that you put up malaria has a way of creating mm. new offense yeah, right like that's just the way you know diseases work and so uh, I thought those pills were were no, man. no, no, no. So I took mine religiously. And so I still got malaria twice. But I bring this up to you because initially when I first got it, I thought I was going to die. But then I went to like the clinic and they helped me out. And they're just like, yeah, take your, take these pills. It's going to flush out your system and you'll be fine. And I thought to myself, do I need to get evacuated? Do I need to go back to the United States? And they're just like, it's like the common cold here. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. And so it made, me, it made me learn to not be an alarmist slowly but surely. And now I'm just super laid back. So that sort of experience, being in a conflict zone for three years, being shot at numerous times, it just makes you not worry about the littlest things. You know what it really does, man? And let me know if this is how you feel about it too. That experience really brought a lot of clarity to my life. Mm. And what I mean to say is, Sofian, is it made me realize quite literally what matters and what doesn't. And it makes you realize how fragile life is. 
quite literally how fragile it is. I'm hearing these stories and seeing people and you, and making a film like this, like the interpreters, man, you, you hear about a lot of loss and I don't mean just like loss of an identity, loss of a place to sleep at night. We're talking real loss, you know, loss of like human connection for the people that we love most loss of what it means to be human even. And so when you're exposed to that sort of reality, it brings a lot of clarity to your life in terms mm. of what matters and what doesn't. Well, sure. Did you have that sort of experience? Oh, absolutely. I remember that that day that I was describing where the there was the firing on the base. That was actually our last day in the country. And mm. I was like, kind of like the Hollywood movie where it's a detective is going to mm. you know, retire and then all this shit goes down. And so they have to continue going on. <laughs> yeah. So it was just like, you know, it, it was it was just funny because I kind of had this weird feeling that something's going to happen. And, and you know, yeah, it was just the immediate flash in your mind is just you think of your family, you know, and you think That's of right. like, and kind of for me, it was kind of like, what am I doing? Like, why am I here? <laughs> you know, I had I had a choice. I mean, I think when you when you meet people who had no choice, you know, that's what I mean about like meeting just truly impacted people. And it's like, I always want to not talk so much about my experience and, you know, focus on more on, on people who don't have a choice, but it's like, it's also a weird position to be in. Cause you're kind of like, all right, well, I'm here now. So I got to deal with this, but like, you, you know, you, you have this place to escape to, you have the, Oh, my family's over there. I'm going to get on the plane. I'm going to go back. And it's like, can you imagine the scenario where your family's right next to you, you know, and where you don't have anywhere to go? It's just like, it's it's intense man and like actually the, one of the interpreters that we were interviewing with he was actually with us at the house where we were staying because it was a little bit more quiet we had gone to his place and it was just it was too noisy so we brought him to our place mm -hmm. and when we were in the middle of the interview he got a phone call that a bomb had gone off right next to his house blown out the windows everyone was fine thank god mm -hmm. but it was just like damn you know i mean what if you were there? What if you were there? But also just like, this is, that's the guy's house. It's like, you know, and he was obviously, we were like, okay, let's go back there. You know, the interview's over. He was like, no, it's okay. Uh, you know, let's just finish call. the Everybody's interview. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like what you're talking about where, you know, you, at that point, I think once he knew everyone was okay, it's like, all right, you know, let's just finish the interview, you know, and then I'll go home. I'll take care of whatever the damage is. But it's like, it's a, just a different type of, you know, it's just a different mental space to be in. It's a total different mental space to be in. And, and what's really curious about what you're saying, this idea of choice, I want to I unpack this thought if we can, because I think this is curious. It's like, you said, what am I doing here? How did I get here? Right? I think everybody that comes from a place of peace and goes to a place of chaos has this epiphany whereby you ask yourself, how did I get here? This is what happened to me when I found myself in a village in Baudrillis and I got dropped off by a helicopter and we were doing a five-day five day mission and day two is when the insurgency, you know, essentially did an ambush on us and, you know, the question that I had in my mind when we were getting shot at was, how did I get here? And what you realize is that the thought that went through my mind was, I am the culmination of all the decisions, decisions I've made in my life, and that's what brought me to this exact spot. And that, that epiphany really just hit me so hard. Like, it was my choice, and it's my fault if anything does happen. And I think that in many ways is such a burden, because you think to yourself, like, what if this is it? 
what if what 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 if this is it and I can't see my mother again? I can't mm-hmm. see my father again. Mm-hmm. And that too is a heavy burden, right? That too for me was a huge burden because I thought to myself, of all the other things I could have chosen to do, Sofian, this is the thing that I chose. And for me, that was that was really interesting. That was an interesting mental exercise to actually have to confront. That thought was an interesting thing to have to confront because I thought to myself, this was this all the t- decisions I've ever made in my entire life brought me to this moment where some of us may not go home. No. And uh, having that having that ability to choose is a privilege. Absolutely, and it's I think that's the, that's the other thing that comes out of that moment yeah. is to then turn to the guy who just said, "Let's continue the interview." Yeah, you know, and yeah. be like, "Okay, well, that's this is what he has to live with, and he doesn't have the choice that I have." And I think that's what shocked me a little bit. Like, I mean, I've most like I, I was saying before, we've had an amazing response to this film. Yeah. Uh, audiences have even said to us things like, "I never really understood what an Iraqi would go through. I never thought about it." Things like that. Or I was, you know, wanted to walk out of your film when you started talking about the travel ban, you know, because you know for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. but I stayed, and I realized that you know, you know, just just people coming to certain realizations. But I remember in one screening we had where someone said something like, he was the one who you know decided to leave Afghanistan with his family and unfortunately had their boat go down in, in the Aegean. This person in the audience was just like, oh, you know, well, he should have just stayed. You know, it's a, he, he should have stayed in Afghanistan. Like, uh, he would have gotten the visa. And that's a person who just doesn't understand the stakes and doesn't understand that he was faced with a decision and a feeling that maybe he's, you know, he's getting a direct threat from the Taliban. Yeah, I'm going to sit around and wait for some paperwork, some bureaucrat sitting somewhere in the U.S. is going to either, you know, seal my fate or set me free. It's like, it's just, it's a, a complete disconnect. It's someone who does never had to think about it in a really deep way. And so it was just like, I mean, I just... I kind of just skirted the question. You know, I mean, I said something like to the effect of what I guess what I'm saying right now, but I, to me, it just, it felt heartless and it felt like it was coming from a place of, coming from a place of someone who I don't think had thought about it. And I hoped by talking to them and maybe them reflecting more on the film that they could realize that, you know, there was this, this guy made a very difficult choice under very difficult circumstances. And, you know, you have to, you have to appreciate that situation is so different from what you have. Yeah. And it and it's also much easier to know that in retrospect. Like right. when you're faced oh, with yeah. when you're faced with yeah. this threat and you're faced with this idea of like mm-hmm. this may never happen, human beings ultimately do better when they implement action. It makes them feel better. At least they feel yeah. like they can control the situation Absolutely. at least slightly. Yeah. yeah. So this person that said that actually yeah. just waiting is very difficult. And I think that's what you know we tried to capture that in the film. It's hard, you know, dramatically to just talk about what waiting is like, but I think that makes up actually most of the experience that these guys had. And that is something that gnaws on you. The uncertainty is there of what can happen. The uncertainty that you're just going to actually get rejected. You know, there's no guarantee that you get it. You can get a a negative response. You have to start from scratch again. So, I mean, the, the, the stakes are huge. So, that's why I said we had to choose stories that kind of moved because forward, you know, because if you are just in that waiting, if that's dramatically all that's happening for someone, it is the reality, you know, but it is also just something that's hard to sustain through a film. 
I, I unless mean, you're experiencing it. For those who experience it, it's like that's everything. But it's hard from the outside to actually understand what that's like. The waiting is the worst. Yeah. And what's really, really interesting about what you just said about the, the moving forward part, I really like to talk about this in terms of what it means to be an American. Often people ask what it means to be an American, and uh, you know we can talk about how to be an American means to be optimistic and to believe in the ideals of like you know freedom of speech, freedom of religion, equality, things of that nature, right? But what I also think is really important about what it means to be an American is this idea of always thinking for the future, always thinking aspirationally. And what do I mean? Like, I'm sure people have asked you, great, this film's great, that film's great, good job, Sofian, but what's next? What's next? What's next? And this idea of always thinking to the future is incredibly privileged. It's so privileged that we in the United States have built our lives around this idea of the future. Right? This country has been built in the last 300 years because people have thought about not today, but tomorrow. In the context of the people that you've interviewed and the film that you've made, you've tried to bridge those two worlds of taking somebody who lives for the moment, staying alive for the moment, and bringing them to a place whereby they can think about tomorrow for the first time in their lives. Mm -hmm. Really, really. You know, in a place like Afghanistan, I mean, 40 years of conflict, Iraq less so. But this idea of being able to plan for the future, this idea of being able to live for the future is, I would argue, an incredibly privileged place to be mentally. And the people in the film that you've showed, they were literally living moment to moment. Mm -hmm. And we don't understand how terrifying that could be. So this, this person who asked that question of why didn't Mushtabal just wait? doesn't understand what it means to be living here. Mm. Doesn't understand the idea and the notions of privilege. Because I think that's it. I think if you can get out of college, go see a financial advisor, put away 8% of your salary for the next 40 years and expect to have $2.3 million even if the market collapses twice, is the definition of privilege. When you, you know what I mean? And so taking somebody, your three characters, from a place of moment-to-moment -moment living and trying to bring them to a place whereby they're living for the future, that's an incredibly transformational mental experience. Definitely. And I think, um, I think to differing, different degrees, they're all um, making that transition still. You know, and I think our film touches a little bit on it. I think with Philip Morris's, you know, Khaled is his real name. Khaled's... Let's um, call him Khaled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he doesn't need to be under the code name anymore. Um, I think with him, he's he's really taken a lot of steps forward. He's a U.S. citizen now. He has a house. He owns a house and has his family does together. Does he live in Minnesota? He does, yeah. He lives in Minnesota. Um, so he is really, um, and in some ways, you know, he, he had, was the first to come over. He had a, an American who here who was really pulling for him and helping him a lot. He's also just an incredibly industrious person, and his son's a hard worker, and he has his nephew with him as well. Who um, you, you don't get to bring your nephew into the SIV, but in this case, his nephew was also an interpreter who also thankfully amazing. got his SIV. An amazing guy. Um, so they have really th been thriving. Yeah. I think, for, and and I think the others as well are all you know. Mujtabaz recently arrived, and so giving away. The ending of the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Too late. But um, he, um, you know, he's still, I think, believes that his family is out there. And I think he's still on that journey. So for him, it's, it's so they're on different, 
um, wavelengths. You know, yeah, there are different sides of the spectrum in terms of that. So, I, but you know, he's his son is is getting a great education. His son is very. Uh, he, I mean, they spent enough time in Turkey that his son speaks Turkish and was doing wow. very well in school there. Wow. Now he's, you know, and his English was already getting good. So he's here. And so, you know, there's a few, that's the future, you know, that's the future from which is, is, is his son is, is getting these opportunities. So yeah, it, it is, a, it's a transition. I mean, it's going from a mindset where, like you said, you know, you're thinking just day to day and yeah. then you're suddenly in this whole new world and it's exciting and also it's scary. It totally is. So speaking of, man, I think this is a great little transition to go into um, the question. I'm going to ask the most privileged American question is what's next for you, man? What's, what, what are you working on? Uh, are you going to be continuing to work on uh, stories of, of people that go from a place of, of, of depredation to a place of you know, abundance? Like what's next? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, we're in development on a couple of things. We just yeah. wrapped a short, uh, it was more of a fun thing um, for uh, PBS American Masters. It's about a Bangladeshi rapper here in Queens, Anik Khan. Awesome. Check him out. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, some other short content stuff. And then in terms of, uh, the next thing of, uh, you know, feature length, you know, a few things in the, in, in, in development right now. Right. So we'll see, we'll see what it is. But I mean, really it's a lot of material in the same space. I mean, I'm kind of in terms of, uh, and I, I'm really proud of the interpreters and I think it, it is sort of, um, a film that is both, um, very personal and close to the characters and, and brings you into their experience and also kind of has, I think, the craft element that we brought to it is that um, being able to kind of bring the thriller aspect to it of, you know, of being in the, those tense situations and um, immersing people in what that what that experience is like, um, that is really a calling card for us for the other kinds of work that we want to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you'll hopefully be seeing some more from us in the, in the near future. Okay. Um, let me ask a question as it pertains to, uh, you know, filmmaking in general, cause I'm kind of curious how this works for you. Are you as excited now about filmmaking as you were when you first started making film? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think I'm, I feel like I've built up, um, a body of work that kind of is, culminating towards the next the next phase and more ambitious projects um greater scope and i'm excited i'm Great. excited for the next thing that's awesome so uh sophia i want to ask a couple rapid fire questions if that's okay yeah, yeah. okay so yeah. just kind of let us know what you first think and we'll take it from there what did you want to be when your teacher asked you what do you want to be when you grow up architect was the first thing seriously yeah what why is that that's curious i just had a family friend who was an architect and i thought he was cool <laughs> it can be that simple yeah Great, great, great. Okay, who's one person dead or alive that you'd love to sit down and have a conversation with? You, man. Yeah, having <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's kind of you. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of fascinated. This is going to be like probably the most boring answer possible, but I really want to talk to Colin Powell about how about we the UN, yeah. for the UN. Yeah. World, yeah, I mean, that's just on my mind right now. I'm one of the projects I'm developing is kind of um around the that that era and uh he just strikes me as someone who knew better i mean he he admits that he admits it was that. a it was a, a bad a bad moment for him in his career but yeah i would like to go deeper i like that uh so for anybody that's listening that knows colin powell please connect sofian <laughs> with uh mr colin powell so he yeah. can confront about these sorts of things that he's curious about um okay here's uh here's something 
um, I think it's kind of curious that most people don't really think about, but um, what's one thing that you'd wish you knew about your parents that you've been hesitant to ask them? I feel like I've, I've really, maybe it's just the function of being a documentary filmmaker, but I've really grilled my parents Great. in the last few years. I mean, actually I found a, or not found, my aunt had a bunch of old Super 8 footage yeah. at her house in Pakistan and uh, it was all moldy and you know, no one had looked at it in a long time and I kind of got it restored and transferred and watched a lot of it. And, you know, it just made me ask a lot of questions. So, you know, their love story and yeah, 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 that's great. That's great. I mean, I guess I, I'm, what I'm really curious about is to know a little bit more about the going back some generations, the family history. It's really vague. Like I told you the story of going from Afghanistan to India to Pakistan, but we actually don't really know that much about it. So it's, I would like, I would, if I could, find more about that but that wouldn't be asking my dad because he knows what i know okay what was your favorite movie as a kid um star wars yeah george lucas yeah empire strikes back fantastic that's that's what made you fall in love with filmmaking that film um to some degree i mean i feel like that uh i was a big sci-fi guy and um wanted to be a sci-fi writer so it didn't necessarily take me in the film direction um, I think I was really struck by a film, the, fil- the film that made me definitely want to be a filmmaker and not a writer. And I look back on it and I still, I think it's a great movie. It's just interesting that it was the one that got me, but it's called In This World. It's Michael Winterbottom's film. It's actually about two Pakistanis who, and played by you know, non-actors, they were these dudes from Quetta, and they make a journey across Iran, across Turkey, they get into a you know a ship. This is back in 2003, 2004. How interesting, based uh, on the film that you just made. Yeah, oh yeah. And I just, it was somewhere between documentary and fiction. You know, they, they fictionalized it. They kind of created scenes and dialogue and stuff. And it was just such a great, it was just a beautiful film, but also the whole approach to it fascinated me. And I just was new then I wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, what's so curious about what you're talking about is you've come full circle. You've actually made a film yeah, that's, that's based in reality, based on gotta, exactly what we talked about. Got to send it to Michael Winterbottom. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. It's amazing. Um, great. So, Fionn, last question. This is going to be kind of deep. Uh-oh. All right. Sir, uh, what's the message you have for the world? You asked me to think about this before, and I, I didn't, and I, and I, and I, I haven't come up with anything. Um, I think it's, it, it's kind of, I guess it's the message of this film, which is just to sort of open yourself to other people's stories and like um i guess my message is to try to tell those stories and bring them to people that's great man. okay uh sofian where can we find your work uh well you can see everything at capital com. Okay. that's my production company and great. the work's there um and at the uh, the interpreters is streaming uh with pbs independent lens but it'll be available on iTunes and great. Vimeo on demand and all that good stuff. And we'll put all the stuff in the show notes. Yeah, great. And, great. Uh, okay, Sofian, I think this is a good time to kind of end this, man. Yeah. Thanks for your time and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, appreciate it. Okay, thanks. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on facebook stories transformation you can find all this information on my website as well www.baktashahadi.com that's b-a-k-t
T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I dot com.